BT's chief executive seems to have spent much of the last few weeks preparing his company for a hostile takeover approach. No one has made a formal offer yet, but word on the street is that it is only a matter of time before arrival in Europe or elsewhere decides to capitalise on the share price, which is down by about 40% in the year to date. The fate awaiting BT and its shareholders, who on top of the share price slump have had to stomach a big dividend cut this year, raises questions about how the company has found itself in this sorry state. To answer that, we have to go back to the 1980s, when Margaret Thatcher had an agenda. From France to the Philippines, from Jamaica to Japan, from Malaysia to Mexico, from Sri Lanka to Singapore, privatisation is on the move. BT was not the first company to be privatised under Thatcher's government, but it was considered a turning point in the policy. The first time a company of its size had been taken out of government ownership and put into the hands of the public. And the public lapped up the opportunity. By the time the deadline on the IPO had expired, the share placing had been oversubscribed by 3.2 times. But did those investors make the right decision? Have BT and the many other ex-public companies which were listed on the London stock market in the 1980s been good for their shareholders and for the market? Or do the British companies which were privatised now lag their international peers from countries which were perhaps less infused by the prospect of denationalisation? Going around Europe in 1981-82, preaching to the Dutch and the Italians and the Germans and the French the virtues of liberalisation and, uh, and privatisation. And I was treated politely, but they thought I was a lunatic. With the help of the IC's telecoms correspondent, Lauren Almeida, we are going to attempt to answer that massive question. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human. Welcome to the Investment Hour. So, Megan, you've written uh, a market history of privatisations this week. It's a big subject, it's getting to 800 words, but you managed it somehow. Um, how have we got where we are today with companies like BT and others? Yeah, it is a it is a big topic, which obviously 800 words is not anywhere near enough to cover everything. So we're going to try and cover a little bit more in the next hour. But the article, yes, is on privatisation and how it came about because of Margaret Thatcher. And what she wanted to do to the markets, she decided that uh, the markets, the, the UK's markets weren't in a very good way and there was a lot of control resting in the hands of the unions around, well, after, it was after several years of Labour government um, and uh, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher came to power and she didn't, when she was running to be the Prime Minister, she wasn't talking a huge amount about privatisation but she was bigging up the markets a lot and saying that say, we need a, a, a fair and free capitalist society. Is nothing less than a crusade to enfranchise the many in the economic life of the nation. And what came out of that was a handful of smaller privatisations, so companies including Cable and Wireless, which is another telecoms company, British Aerospace as well, which is now BAE. And those companies, which were uh, which had been government owned and run, um, were listed, or parts oh, of them, parts of them yeah. were listed on the market, kind of as a bit of an experiment. And part of that was to to put the control of these companies uh, more into the hands of the general public and the running of them to be a, a private enterprise rather than a private enterprise for profits rather than a government. Um, a government scheme. Well, weren't a lot of these nationalised industries, these state-owned industries, losing a lot of money? Yeah, absolutely. They were, and they were being badly run, um, and they were just, they were just too big, and they were op- often they were operating in industries where the rest of the world was starting to be a lot more innovative, and that's something that a lot of 
of her um, cabinet said at the time that these companies just couldn't catch up with or couldn't keep up with what was happening elsewhere because they were government owned and as well as that they did raise a huge amount of money selling them raised a huge amount of money for a government which had inherited quite large deficits um, so I mean the the BT um, IPO or the initial IPO on its own raised 3.9 billion you, you mentioned that Thatcher wasn't you know perhaps the driving force behind this so we heard that from a guy called Kenneth Baker and he came up in uh, something I was writing about last week which was the um, the, the uh, massive expansion of interest in information technology in the UK in the 1980s. What, what was his, uh, his role in the Cabinet he, at this point? He was the Minister for Industry and Information Technology, which actually is quite interesting that those two things were combined at the time. I, mean, I, I think there were a lot of worries at the time about the, the impact of IT mm. uh, on, on industry, and it was particularly around uh, the rise of uh, microchips, semiconductors, robotics... Um, I think you know, people were looking at a lot of UK industry at the time thinking it was somewhat archaic and antiquated and looking over overseas at places like Japan where they'd really embraced these technologies and, and there were massive fears in this, this country that basically huge swathes of the workforce were going to be made redundant by technology. So, so it kind of did make sense that these two things came together. There was a big documentary about it in 1978 but now the chips are down <laughs> and uh, yeah the gov- governments were very very worried about the effects of technology on industry so perhaps that's why they were combined mm. in that way the other thing that Kenneth Baker was worried about specifically was uh, was public interest in these companies and, and how much of a role gen- the general population of Britain played in the actual running and the and the oversight of these companies and he, he said when he when uh, towards the end of the the Thatcher era, he said when we came into office there were about 3 million people who owned shares in Britain by the end of the Thatcher years there were 12 to 15 million shareholders, which is actually about the same as it is today, about 15 million people in the UK are investors so it was, that was another massive point of all this privatisation, bringing these companies into the forefront and making the public interested in their success I remember hearing stories uh, of the, the 1980s when, when these things were taken off, so you did get these these huge rushes to buy into things. I, th- I think uh, I-, I remember in the mid 1980s the ad for uh, for the British Gas IPO. Oh, I'm glad you're here. This will interest you. Uh, British Gas shares. They come out in November. If you see Sid, tell him. See, I remember, I remember it really well. But yeah, everyone bought into these things. Everyone, millions of people bought into these. And yeah. you know, I was told a story by uh, a stockbroker who was around at the time. Uh, they, they you know, stockbroking um, counters were set up in, in places like department stores. Um, you know, it really was, like, you know, people embraced it yeah. hugely at the time. And I actually, I, when I was dealing with uh, uh, an inheritance, what I found in there was uh, three lots of share certificates, BG Group, Centrica and National Grid. And they were the legacy of people signing up to, to these, uh, these IPOs. And that is actually an interesting point about about the IPOs and whether or not shareholders have benefit, benefited from them. Because actually, what we'll do in a minute is we'll, we're going to go through some of these companies and look at the state that they're in now. A lot of them are not in a particularly good state. But actually, shareholders will have done very well out of... I mean, firstly, the duration. They've been listed for a long time now. And secondly, that init- if you bought into the initial fundraising, you benefited when other parts were, were listed and when bits were spun out. And... There are very few of these companies which were these massive creaking giants which are in the same form as they were when they were 
when they were listed. Um, I, I think people would have done several thousand percent off the back of the British Gas uh, IPO. But, but as I said, I, I believe that the value there was created through through the spin-ups, as yeah. you say. Uh, whereas if you look at what's really left today, National Grid is obviously still listed. Centrica is still listed. It's, it's not looking not looking in a very good state today. No. Um, and BG fell, obviously, to a, a big bid from Shell. So we're now Shell shareholders instead. Yeah. You know, looking at BT... You know, what, what we actually have here is a company that has probably not created value through, through its spin-out or spin-outs it could have made. And I think we're going to probably talk about that yeah. in a bit because the, the, uh, the fact that OpenReach, the infrastructure division, remains part of BT is perhaps one of the uh, one of its biggest sort of uh, sources of, of cash but also one of its biggest weaknesses at the yeah. same time. Yeah. yeah, we'll go on to talk about BT because it is the, the topic of the moment and for the company that was when it was privatised was the big star of the show it's it's really not looking great at the moment and I actually commented in my article this week with Margaret Thatcher who was extremely positive about the the BT privatisation at the time she said BT privatisation did more than anything else to lay the basis for share owning popular cap- capitalism in Britain would she be saying that now looking at the state that, <laughs> that this company is in it's, it's pretty dire but before we get on to BT, well, let's have a look at some of the others because some of them, some of them are interesting. British Aerospace, for example, which was the first. Um, that was actually the process of um, of IPOing British Aerospace was actually started by Callaghan in the in the Labour government, which came before Margaret Thatcher. Interesting to hear that it was a Labour mm. idea to do that. Yeah, I mean, they didn't see it through, but they were. It was the maybe they would have done if they'd stayed in power but it was the the ball was rolling then um, and it was 1981 that it was part of it was spun out onto the market and today it's BAE and it's gone through various different guises since then but BAE is still a very good company and it's benefited from not being a publicly owned a publicly run business because it's expanded into new into new technology and so and it, it's, well, it's, it's continues to be innovative huge, huge expansion overseas so you know BAE's biggest market is the US now you know in in the time when uh, uh, the, you know the major supplier of military equipment would have been owned by the government that, that just wouldn't have been the case mm-hmm. and the same is true of Rolls Royce which when it was IPO'd in 1987 was making a huge amount of its money in the UK and now as well, it's providing defence, it's providing all of its engineering globally, and it's it remains, I mean, it had results today. It's struggled today. They're not, but they're not pretty, but you can hardly blame. No, yeah. I mean, and then, I mean, could you say the same for British Airways as well, which actually hasn't been, IAG hasn't been a bad company for a long time. Coronavirus has uh, disrupted the situation, but British Airways, which was also IPO'd in 1987, has benefited from being a global operator rather than a strictly British carrier. Um, so for a lot of these, a lot of these companies, the answer is yes. It, it is, the IPO has been a success, and those are the companies which have operated in industries where where international globalisation, where innovation has been really, really important. I, th- I think there's also a story of access to capital and capital markets. Mm. Um, so privatisation would have, have given these companies the opportunity to tap 
large financial centres for, for the money they needed to, to expand and grow their business and invest in the way that they needed to, to, to grow, which, which wouldn't necessarily have been available to them in the same way as, uh, as government-owned, as state-owned companies. That, that funding would have generally had to come from the government somehow, and the, and the, the country didn't simply have it. Yeah, simply, I, didn't, simply didn't have it. Yeah, and another one, British Petroleum. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine the government funding everything that BP's having to spend at the moment? It's just... It's not, it's not something that would have would have been feasible. But BP now is is and continues to be, despite dividend issues this year, a, a good investment. I mean, you mentioned dividends. That's one of the interesting thing about, things about a lot of these these companies. These have been or become, you know, the reliable dividend payers for for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people who would have held those shares, you know, for 20, 25 years since since they were floated. Um, you know, I, we've got views on dividends and uh, you know whether the obsession with with paying dividends, with receiving dividends, actually has also somewhat stymied the growth of this company, uh, these companies, which is perhaps where we've got to. In the case of some of them, BT being a very good example. Mm, yeah, and actually, looking down that list, all of those companies which remain on the market are are generous dividend payers. Perhaps BAE and Rolls Royce slightly less so of the of the group. They are maybe a little bit more responsible with their dividend payments than BT has been. But yeah, the focus on shareholder returns through through dividend payments rather than through capital gains, through innovation, growth, capital gains, has, has been a problem for a lot of British companies. And yeah, and maybe that is part of the legacy of them being when they were floated, when they were IPO'd, there was this dividend promise, which a lot of them have not gone back on. Yeah, and there is always this big question uh, of you know how, how much these companies are run in the interest of their customers uh, rather than in the interest of making profits for shareholders. And sometimes those shareholders are, are private shareholders. So some of the water, water utility, for example, Thames Water. Yeah. Uh, there, there are always um, debates around whether this model you know has has really shortchanged the customer in many instances. Um, certainly, you know, in the power market. Uh, we talked about Centrica, but there, there, was, there were always great concerns that it was overcharging its customers. They couldn't switch very easily. And that market has liberalised a bit, which is mm. a bit more, which is uh, and, and opens up to a lot of competition, which is why Centrica is probably uh, having a lot of the troubles that it has. But that's not been the case for, for all of these industries. Um, no, I, I do think the Centrica and the British gas issue is really interesting because it, it almost feels like it's a few years in ahead of BT in terms of what the regulators are doing. They, they've had more of a role. They've been harsher to the energy and the power industry than they have been in the telecoms industry. And that has bred a, a much more competitive marketplace. British Gas is not the one and only or one of just two big players. We call them the big six because there are six, there are six very, very competitive companies in that market. And now there are a whole host of other ones which the regulators have welcomed because because of the energy price cap. It's made it harder for the companies like British Gas and Centrica to, to make money. And it's a real problem for these ex-nationalised companies because they kind of, like, on the one hand, they're trying to grow and they're trying to, they're, they're trying to be private companies and be innovative. But on the other hand, they've got the regulators constantly making sure that they're not monopolies and they are... Uh, and British Gas is was certainly an example of that when it IPO'd, and now it's definitely not a monopoly. 
and the regulator has helped that and would you want to own shares in Centrica right now? I don't think so. We do happen to own some actually through the uh, flotation. So that's, but that's different. So would you buy some now? That's a very different question altogether. No. No, I probably would not. Um, but you know, would you buy BT shares? That's a, that's a different question altogether. Um, yes. One, one which Phil Oakley's actually looked at this week uh, but we'll come back to that that shortly. But I mean, going back to the question of you know the amount of profit that these companies are allowed to make, uh, and, and why perhaps that's made them unattractive as investments. You know, this is this is something that just before the last election really kicked off in a big way. You know, there was a real push uh, from the the, uh, the socialist side of the uh, debate. You know, to, to to argue that these companies should be renationalised. You know, yeah. it was a very it was a really serious. Serious threat. You know, many saw it as a serious threat. Absolutely. Uh, as that election rumbled and on. If you uh, if you use Twitter, there were people were genuinely thinking because of Twitter being one uh, an organisation which broadcast that message maybe more than the the uh, the capitalist message. It uh, it did seem for quite a while like Labour might win, and there might be all these these industries that were being renationalised, starting with the utility providers, which were actually privatised more recently. They, that was a, a, some of them were, were under Tony Blair's Labour government, the uh, privatisation of them. But they're another one which has been... They've been more tightly regulated than, than BT has. And it, does that make them more secure? Does that... I mean, it doesn't welcome competition, which is, was one of the reasons why Margaret Thatcher wanted to privatise all these companies. She thought that, that competition was needed to promote industry growth. But keeping a tight hold, like the water companies have, have had, I mean, how can you enter the water industry as a new player? You just can't. It's impossible. Because they're so t- it is so tightly regulated. I think, I think water is where, where most of the concerns lie, because, you know, it's hard to switch. Yeah. Um, and there are some some quite you know, aggressive private equity-backed ownership in that sector yeah. as well. Um, no, it was, uh, I mean, during, during that election, it was, uh, I think someone put a bill on, on this renationalising um, all of the things that had been spun off. £176 billion, according to the Centre for Policy Studies. Wow. Uh, I'm not sure where they were ever planning to get that, uh, that money from. Um, but, you know, uh, even, even the Conservatives had, 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 had suggested that the, um, the water companies and their use of offshore tax structures was irresponsible. Well, the water companies is one that I really don't understand why they are they are not, not they're not government owned anymore because they're not being <laughs> no one's benefiting from from them apart from the the shareholders and there, there isn't any growth. The consumer is really not benefiting from it. I mean, where I live, we have to use Affinity Water. That's it. There is no other option. And so, what's the point in it being a uh, a privately owned private enterprise. Having said that, I mean the regulators are fairly tight on on, on the water groups. You know, there is a regulatory settlement. Yeah, yeah. They are allowed to make certain amounts. Which of money. again begs the question: Why are they why are they listed? Because they're so tightly regulated, they can't grow. They just continue to get their dividends out every year. That's why holding them for income is the only reason why you would why they need to be on the market. And they have to be relatively safe. Yeah. Time, <laughs> so slash dividends. Yeah, but yeah, it is a. Whether or not the utility companies should be on the market is an interesting question, and it's also an interesting question in the argument around BT because the more and more the world uses 
technology and telecoms, the more and more BT is a utility company, a well, pure utility company. It's quite, it's quite interesting because, you know, perhaps the regulators are tougher on industries like energy or, or to an extent water, which they are, because they're seen as uh, necessities, yeah. household necessities, where, whereas perhaps telecoms and broadband has historically been seen as more of a, of a luxury. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when, you know, you didn't have to have a, tele- a telephone in your home, you went up to the phone box up the road. Uh, don't quite remember that, quite, thank God. Um, but, 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 you know, broadband is now seen as, as a necessity. I think, you know, COVID-19 has proved, mm. you know, for, for many people stuck in their homes, for, for, for uh, economic activity to continue, it's not so luxury. But even for us, I mean, we're in the office now, and one of our meetings this morning was bordering on not doable because one person had atrocious Wi-Fi. And, yeah, it, 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 I, I think in this day and age, telecoms is a necessity, not a luxury, which is perhaps leads nicely on to BT. How we're here, why BT is inherent to the problems in the UK's telecoms industry. So I looked at some numbers in my editorial this week on this on this subject of, of broadband quality. Uh, numbers that are put together by a company called Cable. Uh, it's called the World Worldwide Broadband Speed League, and uh, the UK ranks 35th in the world on its broadband infrastructure. So you've got Singapore and Taiwan at the top, as you would expect. These very modern modern economies. Um, but then above us, you've got countries like Slovakia, Slovenia, and one place above us, Madagascar. Oh, that is just so, so shocking. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, we've actually got really good broadband coverage in the UK, but it's been done in a way that is, is essentially cheaper to, to do what BT have largely done, which is fibre to the cabinet, um, or, or, or not even that. Um, we, we have very, very poor fibre coverage in this country, so our broadband is slow. Mm. So, let's bring Lauren in now because you're our telecoms expert what how is this situation how bad is the situation how have we got here and what role has BT played in it being like that well the connection is really bad in the UK I think it's about like 12% of UK households have access to fibre broadband um, and it's just because they've not been investing enough in open reach I mean there is an argument that they've kind of been that the dividend the dividend may be good for shareholders but it's cost a lot, and they should have been funneling that money into capital expenditure. Mm. Um, so, open reach being the uh, the utility part of uh, of BT, the bit mm. that owns and operates and, and builds the actual network. Yeah, and that that cut to the dividend until twenty twenty two is going to it's going to save them around three billion pounds. And I mean, you know, it's kind of been done whilst loads of companies have been cutting their dividends because of coronavirus. But really, I think this is probably a good excuse to kind of push that money towards open reach, which is where it should be. So historically, that money, that 3.2 every year, or some, sometimes slightly more than that, was when they paid, paid special dividends, was obviously not being invested in, in the network. Why is BT, why, why is open reach such, so important to, to the UK telecoms infrastructure? It basically supports everyone's internet. Like there isn't, it, it, it's the market leader, and, and without it, I mean, that's the reason why the, the shoddy connections are so are so disparate across the country. It's why it's why that the UK is so is so behind on that list of countries. Without it, without proper investment in it, the, the economy is not. It's, eventually, it's not going to be as competitive as, as those other as, as the other countries like Taiwan and Singapore because we've got rubbish connection, and especially because people are working from home now. It really affects the way businesses are operating. So, BT, I mean, it's hard to say that BT's not to blame in the situation. It, it's obviously prioritised um, 
dividends over over investment in this network. Yeah. Um, but we know how expensive this network is going to be. They've put some rough numbers on it themselves. I think they said they expect to spend twelve billion uh, pounds getting this uh, fibre fiber to the premises to twenty billion homes by mid to late the mid to late twenty twenties. That's a that's a lot of money. Yeah. And there's been a lot of speculation about where it, where it can possibly come from within B, within BT as it currently is. Yeah. Yeah. So then maybe it comes back to as well. BT's mismanagement and where it spent money and Phil has actually looked at some of the numbers of that um, this week it spent a lot of money on on broadcast and it's it's consumer section 2.4 billion on broadcast rights is they've committed to spend in, in the next few years and that's on top of all the spending on the fact that they want to spend a lot on open reach and they they spent more so 2019 eight, 17, 18, 19 were just ridiculous years for spending on TV rights especially the sport that getting football was so expensive I mean has that been has that distracted the company from investment in open reach I, I think they, they would have felt they had to do it at the time so if you looked at, if you looked at the way the market was evolving um, you know there, there was uh, there was a move from sort of selling individual services like uh, like the pipes as it were you know yeah. the, the, the telephones connection the, the broadband connection or the mobile phone uh, or if you were sky selling small through your satellite dish, it's all started to coalesce. Yeah. They call it sort of bundling. Um, and actually, we, we did a big bit of research when I was one of my previous jobs with the bundle jungle, which I think is still going, which is about how this market uh, evolved. And um, yeah, I think they thought they, they thought they had to do it because people wanted to buy a triple play, quad play, um, and they felt if we don't have the content, we won't be able to sell our lines either. But this is what I find really weird about the situation because not all of the telecoms companies did that. And the ones that are still thriving, like Liberty Global, for example, that's, that's still a, a, a good, a decent company. And to a certain extent, Vodafone as well. They were more about... They, were more, they focused on spending on their own infrastructure and international expansion rather than the bundle thing. And Sky was never a telecoms company, not in the purest form of telecoms. I don't understand why BT ever went into sports and, and the consumer market to the way that it, in the way that it did. But, but Sky did go into telecoms. Mm, uh, but it went the it, other way. Well, it brought, yeah, it did. It, it went from content into telecoms. Mm. It bought a company called EasyNet uh, mm-hmm. a number of years ago. It wasn't a big uh, ISP, but it was internet service provider. But it was a... It was a, it was big enough yeah. to, to help them strategically do what they needed to do and start offering those bundles. So I think BT, when that started to happen, uh, and of course you had competition. Open, you know, there was a lot of regulatory pressure for it to open up its exchanges to mm-hmm. to, to, to let other people access its core networks. Uh, I think it, it got a bit scared, and and that and that expenditure on football rights, such a like, is the consequence of that. And also the massive blunder they made in selling off their own mobile phones business Huge. and then buying EE for a ridiculous amount of money a few years later I mean that was that was a real management muck up and uh, yeah so to a certain extent management has been to blame but then also they have struggled with the fact that it is a legacy government run business BT's attitude after privatisation was the world hasn't changed very much but the world was changing changing dramatically and it took some time for them to adjust but they still acted like a monopolist so yeah I mean I think that that's an amazing uh, insight there from, uh, from Kenneth Baker again you know I, 
yeah, I, I, he must have been talking, you know, a decade ago or so, mm. uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I think BT didn't really change that much. Uh, and it still really hasn't changed that much. It still acts like a monopolist. And, you know, it's, in some respects, the, the whole open reach debacle um, is a reflection of the fact that it really doesn't want to let go no. of that monopoly network position in the UK. So Openreach is a monopoly and so the Openreach debacle which was what three years ago mm. they the regulators wanted to do something about Openreach they didn't really know what and so what they landed on was they're going to be split out into a separate company but that company is 100% owned by BT which is such a cop out and it was just ridiculous. It was a really bad comment. It was so bad. I was, I was pretty cross when I heard that. that it, was, it was so bad. and Which meant that Openreach can continue to, uh, <laughs> to milk the cash from, from this monopoly. And that cash has gone into the dividends, and it's gone into the pension deficit, and it's gone into the consumer business. It has not stayed within open reach, however much the regulators would like to think that it, it would have done. It, it hasn't. Um, and now I think BT is being called up on that, finally. Um, putting a new chief executive in open reach, and then a new chief executive into BT, because uh, Gavin Patterson was pretty appalling. And Philip Jansen, the current chief executive does seem to be making slightly better decisions um they the company is investing a lot in bt i mean i think if you're an engineer just you don't just call bt up and be like where where do you need me to go everywhere is laying fiber cables because they know now that they really really need to catch up with with the rest of the world but also competition within the uk it's that is what has sparked and that is what going back to privatisation what Kenneth Baker and Margaret Thatcher were talking about a lot at the time they wanted to, to spark competition in the telecoms industry well there, there, there was some competition at the time it's a company called Mercury yeah so that was part of cable and wireless um, alright so an old state owned enterprise and cable it's, the, it's against an old state owned enterprise yeah absolutely and cable and wireless has absolutely not, I mean it flopped and the remains of cable and wireless were bought by Vodafone a couple of years ago but, but the point Kenneth Baker was making there was that this competition had arrived, had emerged. Uh, it obviously needed access to the national infrastructure, mm-hmm. and BT got in the way. Yeah, yeah. And the regulators weren't strong enough to do anything about it, and that was hugely problematic. And it, it's now it's taken really innovative companies with a lot of money behind them. So City Fibre was a listed company until a few years ago, and it has been bought by bought by private equity. Obviously, very deep pockets huge investment and all of a sudden BT's got a bit of competition and Vodafone and City Fibre are working together um, to to actually invest in and so they're doing much more regional networks they're doing hubs outside of the main economic centres and uh, and it's made BT well, and Openreach sit up and think and that that's a good thing but maybe not necessarily for the shareholder well, no, I mean, you've also got other competition that's been around perhaps a little bit longer. Uh, Virgin, obviously, mm-hmm. um, I think they can reach about 15 million homes. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, fibre is coming. Yeah. Yeah, BT, they have to do something. I guess, that, I think this is why Phil talks about, look, you've got this amazing asset in open reach within BT. Um, but, you know, extracting the value from it is going to prove very hard. It's why some of the parts of BT is actually greater than the whole. Yeah, well, BT's market cap at the moment is 10.4 billion. And in March 2020, Openreach regulatory financial statement said it was worth 14.4. Yeah. So there's a bit of a disparity there. I don't know where they get 14.4 from, 
and if there is going to be more competition and 14.4 maybe sounds a little bit steep it maybe does it maybe does but you know there are other bits of ET as well mm. so you know if you consider that um, we were talking about it the other day it has a, a business infrastructure mm-hmm. it has global services mm-hmm. it has a consumer marketing division it has you know uh, so is all that worth minus four, four billion <laughs> or minus whatever billion it's, yeah. uh, you know the, it's 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 undervalued. It's company as a company, its shares are undervalued. Yeah. Without without a doubt. Yeah. But extracting that value, as Phil argues, is going to prove pretty tricky. Partly because you've you've got this intense competition that's emerging in in, in its main market. Yeah. So Lauren, as uh, someone who looks at BT quite regularly, is there is there hope if you're a if you're a shareholder? Is, is there hope of recovery? Well, I think. Because the share price is so low at the moment, I think it's attracted some attention. Or maybe it's, it's definitely um, given rise to chatter on the street about a potential takeover. Uh, so Sky, Sky News reported last weekend that um, BT had asked Goldman Sachs to prepare a, a bid defence strategy or update that strategy. And so they, did, they didn't identify any, any specific uh, candidates for a takeover, but it's a lot to take on I mean it's a, it's the huge pension deficit and it's also open reach and there's also the security question about Huawei and taking that out of uh, British networks so um, yeah the share, share price is like extremely low um, it, maybe that maybe there is hope for a recovery now that sports is back and that, that might help bump up the share price a little bit and help with the consumer division um, and kind of the country's coming out of lockdown very slowly so that might help but um, I think in the long term as, as Phil kind of argues this week in the magazine, it's, it's really hard to kind of unlock all of the value that's kind of hidden in BT at the moment. I mean, the shares bounced this week when when this news that, mm. that Goldman yeah. Sachs was uh, was being lined up. Um, but the shares also went up when the FT reported that someone was interested in buying stake in OpenReach, and then it went back down again. So people will love a shareholders would love a uh, a takeover battle. But how about spinning bits out? Would that be the best option? If going back to the fact that these companies, some of them, the spin-outs is actually what unlocked value for the shareholders. Is that the right answer for, for BT? Well, I think that, that on the one hand, for OpenReach spinning it out, I think the argument is that maybe that kind of would give a cash injection might help the pension deficit a little bit. But from my understanding as well is that, that OpenReach is really important as a cash asset for the pension fund. So how does BT kind of plug that shortfall if it then spins out OpenReach? Um, so yeah, I wonder how many times that question has been circulated around the boardroom at BT. What yeah, do we do? It, what do you do? But, but, you know, if, if, if this company is essentially you know a pension fund with some telecoms assets on the front of it, then what? what why is that a company you want to invest in? Mm. You know, if the value in that organisation is within open reach, but they can't extract that value because of this pension uh, scheme, you know, why is that a company you would want to invest in? Exactly, and is. The, does the company need some help in sorting out its pension deficit? Because a lot of it wasn't its fault. It did cancel, well, it did shift its pension to a defined contribution from a defined benefit scheme. I mean, maybe a little bit later than it should have done, but it's done that now. It's, it's managing its pension better now, but it's, this legacy deficit is something, how are they ever going to plug that gap? Someone has to solve it. Mm. Someone has to solve it, and you know, will they solve it within the current structure? Probably not, because no. they haven't solved it for the best part of 30, 40 years. No. Um, you know, does the spin-out make more sense? I think, I don't know, personally, I think it does. Mm. I, I wish that they'd have done that 
three years ago yeah. when they when they instead came up with this convoluted structure of ownership of overreach. Because then you have an asset, you know, you have a, a, a business that can invest because it knows it can then sell that those services to, to whoever it likes and actually genuinely create, create a competitive market. Mm-hmm. Um, genuinely uh, attract the investment that it needs to, to, to build the infrastructure uh, that, it, that, that the country needs. Members of the BC Pension Scheme have to be protected, but then to what extent are those members of the BC Pension Scheme being protected to the detriment of the UK's telecom, telecoms infrastructure? And at the moment, it feels like quite a lot. So surely there needs to be a bit of help in managing that pension deficit and so that BT can spin out what it needs to spin out, make good business decisions, which will allow for it to be a, a, a genuine player in the UK's growth in telecoms. I mean, you have to, you have to ask yourself how other countries have managed to, uh, yeah, to, to, to deliver really good telecom services, broadband services. You know, one of the potential bidders that people are talking about here is Deutsche Telekom. Yeah. Um, you know, go, go to France, go to Germany, go to Spain. Uh, you know, their, so much their networks are so much better. Yeah. How have they done it? Presumably yeah. they were similar types of companies to BT. Yeah, yeah. Well, Deutsche Telekom is a very similar similar company, but it has, it's just, it has invested better. It's kept a tighter grip on its spending, partly because it can, because it hasn't, the dividend mentality in Germany isn't quite as strong as it is here, partly because... It doesn't have that a huge pension deficit to the extent that BT does, and partly because it's been managed better. And I think Gavin Passon has a lot to answer for there because he was in charge of BT for a long time, and very very bad decisions were made. And when Philip Jansen came on board, I mean he is a, a bit of a specialist in spin outs, and he came from WorldPay, which had uh, so he was he was chief executive when it was acquired by Vantiv in 2018. So Philip Jansen is, is used to being chief executive of a company which is going through some sort of spin-out takeover, um, reverse takeover. He, he's, he's known for that and he's good at it. Uh, and actually, when he was appointed chief executive, I was absolutely convinced that Deutsche Telekom was going to make a bid for, for BT that day. I was so convinced I was late to a football match because I wanted to, uh, to write the story so badly. So I was two years early, but I was, uh, I was so sure that Deutsche Telekom were going to make it. And it looks like they will in the next few weeks. There's going to be some sort of... I mean, surely Deutsche Telekom are going to be involved in, in the discussion. And then there may be other companies which are involved in, I want part of it, I want this part, I want that part. Maybe that's where BC will end up. In bits. In bits, yeah. What a shame. So, to go back to that initial question, is has privatisation worked? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely cop-out answer. Uh, no, no, but it, it has because you know you actually look at uh, things like things like the railways. You know they were in a mess. They were in a mess. Um, and, I, and I saw you put a face there because we will have to endure the railways still. But they are they are better run, more more timely. There are huge numbers of passengers on them these days. Mm. Many 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 more passengers than, than, than there were when it was privatised. Um, yeah, it's not always perfect, but but you know, and, and actually, the sort of uh, infrastructure operating company model isn't isn't great, but but it's a lot better than it was. And how about BT? Was uh, was privatising BT the right thing to do in the eighties? Well, I think it probably was because because otherwise, you know, you would have had a government-owned telco that also didn't invest 
you know, there has been some progress here. You know, open reach is uh, something that can be accessed by by competition. Um, you know, we do have. Uh, they, I mean, BT have been, you know, pretty innovative. I mean, we haven't got the fastest ball bat in the world, but it's not it's not terrible either. Mm. You know, five to the cabinet. Uh, as Phil writes, this is a, is a pretty clever bit of technology mm. that, that, that they've delivered there. So, you know, it, it, it's done good things. Lots of people still use it. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't look convinced. I don't know. It's difficult. It's very difficult. I think... I don't think there was enough support given for... Uh, I think they, BT has struggled with fighting a regulatory, ba- reg- regulatory battle but without having any support. And how could it ever both grow and support the legacy parts of the business with the regulation around it and not enough has been done to put BT on the right track and it is still it is still a monopoly Um, open reach is a monopoly and it's been 30 years and potentially there should have been more competition in the UK's telecoms network in that time and the regulators haven't done enough to promote competition. Yeah, I mean, I, I think looking at more recent privatisations, you know, Royal Mail is another interesting example mm. which we haven't discussed yet. Um, I mean, has, has that worked for shareholders? No, no way, um, not yet. <laughs> so you know, I think that floated at it's about four and a half quid, four hundred fifty-five p. The shares are now one eighty p. And you know, you you kind of struggle to see how how they can grow in the face of competition in the you know the logistics the password market with yeah. their universal service obligation which I guess is another bit of regulation that's holds them back as a yeah. as a private company um, so so you no know, it hasn't worked there no. but if you'd been a British Gas shareholder on day one you'd have made the points at which you'd have made something like eighteen thousand percent although if you'd hung on to your century shares for a little bit longer you would probably be ruining it um, so so yeah it's it's yes and no. So what next? Will we see parts of the BBC coming onto the market? Parts of the NHS? There are still lots of industries in the UK which are almost 100% government owned and operated. And, uh, and I mean, BT isn't doing a very good job at showing that privatisation can be good. But if it does, I mean, Royal Mail was 2013 and there is still appetite for, there was clearly still appetite for the shares at the time. Maybe there isn't now, but but yeah, maybe maybe the BBC will be the next thing to to see on the market. We'll see on the market. Well, the Royal Mail, the more the Royal Mail IPO was massively oversubscribed. Mm. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it's often talk of, of privatising. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's a route now for yeah for for, uh, for getting problem children off of the government's <laughs> books a lot of the time. Um, the BBC is definitely a problem child. Yeah, quite what you'd be buying, I don't know, because the only way it makes its money is through. Really, yeah, license fee. Yeah. Uh, so, what have you got? You've got bits of, you know, it's sort of global business and world service and that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, and it sells. It's got a lot of its own studios and it sells its own content. To also buys in a lot of content as well. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean the NHS. You know, that that is the sacred cow. Never privatised the NHS, mm-hmm. even though, as we well know, lots of bits of it are already quite well served by by private providers. Yeah, a topic we'll be discussing shortly. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a big subject anyway, and uh, you could argue till the end of time and probably never come to a conclusion about it, but unfortunately this podcast has to come to a conclusion. Um, um, 
Yeah, yeah thank, thanks, Megan. Thanks, Lauren, for uh, a good discussion. But before we go, let me just talk you through what else we've got in this week's magazine. There's lots on BT. Um, as said, Megan has looked at the history of privatisations and, and BT's role within that. Um, and we've looked at the, uh, the latest news uh, that it's mounting a, a big, big defence. And Phil has, has uh, looked at sort of some of the numbers behind it, as we've alluded to, particularly the value, the hidden value in open reach and how difficult it might be to extract that. We've got lots of results in the company section this week. I think it's going to stay busy uh, for a while yet, along with all the usual tips. Uh, a lot of stuff in the uh, money and fun section. Dave Baxter this week has looked at um, niche ETFs. These are the ETFs that give you exposure to to very specific trends like healthcare or technology or aging populations or whatever else it might be, automation and robotics. And he's trying to understand whether uh, what role they can play in your portfolio and, and how you manage the extra risks that actually come with them. Uh, lots of comment this week, some very interesting stuff uh, from, from Chris Dillo uh, and Mr. Bearball. Uh, lots of the news with Nilusha Karina Ratner has looked at the sharing economy, um, which could be another casualty of COVID-19. Um, nobody wants to show any other, anyone else's stuff. Uh, anymore um, and uh, the cover feature this week which is also written by Lelouchi, um which is about hydrogen looking at what's been touted as the fuel of the future and asking whether um, the hydrogen economy the idea of the hydrogen economy could make for a hot investment or is it all just hot air shares in hydrogen companies have been flying this year but it could be a bit of a bubble thank you all for listening thank you Lauren thank you Megan um, and uh, we'll be back again next week in the meantime get off to the news agent pick up the magazine we'll get online and subscribe thank you ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend hi I'm Jesse Crookshank Jesse Crookshank I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.